Welcome to All Your Favorite Music is Probably, where we take a themed dive into popular songs and unearth the connections like deep sea fishing. I'm your host, Mark Montgomery French, music culture writer, film composer, YouTuber, and Unagi enthusiast. And today's theme is All Your Favorite Music is Probably Old Timey Dance Grooves. And my guest today is actor, tour guide, and entrepreneur Paul Jennings. Hi, Paul. Good morning. How are you? I am swell. I'm I'm slightly tired because when I'm not here, I'm also working uh, at Dickens Fair, which is mm-hmm. for those who don't know an immersive uh, theatrical experience. And it's uh, it, there are long days. It's lovely, <laughs> but I haven't done the slash improv slash acting role in a while, so I'm a little. Uh, a little buzzed from it, uh, which of course will make a lively podcast. So today we're talking about old-timey dance grooves, and as you know, the youngins think all their beats are new, right? I've got my new drum machine, and I got some loops from a guy off the of SoundCloud, and all my beats are, are and, and they're not. Beats go back to as long as somebody could bang something against something else, sticks, bones, other people, as long as you could do that, the rhythms were old. And it's funny how many of those old rhythms get into our favorite songs, you know, rock songs and songs are all fresh. And yeah. So for example, have you been to Rio de la Plata? I have not. It's an area between Argentina and Uruguay, and that's where tango was invented. And it was one of those things where it's like, if you're going to bring slaves from Africa and you're going to have some European music, some new stuff's going to come up. And so in 1880, that's where the tango was invented. And because it involved bodies touching and close together and in theatrical modes, it was scandalous, of course. (laughs) But... Eventually, it got around the world, and that is the beat in The Police's Roxanne. And apparently, Ding won a bossa nova beat, and uh, Stuart Copeland said, nope, nope, I think tango, which is a bizarre choice for, you know, late 70s <laughs> in England right. uh, in a punk style. But it is a straight-up tango, and f- with that, I'm going to play you The Police and Roxanne. Those days are over You don't have to say a 
And that was Roxanne by the police, which is secretly or not so secretly now a tango song. Didn't they do it as a full on tango in Moulin Rouge? Oh, right. They did. Yes. Yeah. It's like a whole, it's like, yeah, no, it's like now everyone knows that was a tango. <laughs> uh, tango was so interesting because unlike many of the other old timey dances, there's still like a uh, scandal about the dance mm-hmm. uh, because of the way people sashay. It's a romantic dance. Not, not every couple's dance is necessarily as as erotic <laughs> as tango is. Yeah, I was going to say, it's not so much romantic, it's just kind of <laughs> sexy. Yeah, like... Erotic is simply the classy way of saying sex. Yes. <laughs> yeah. uh, absolutely. I would love to get into a... Uh, and I'll, you'll love where this is going. So, um, <laughs> in Brazil in the early 20th century was the creation of the samba beats, kind of like a, a gallop. It's like da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da. That was a very simple gallop, a right. very simple beat. And it's also a beat, and it's a, a, a dance and a melodic style, and is considered to be one of the most primary parts of Brazilian's national identity. The big mm-hmm. thing. I, I don't think we have a beat here. Maybe um, James Brown beats. Maybe the funky drummer right. is something we have. But it's a big thing there. And that samba beat is the sped way up is right. Iron Maiden's Run to the Hills. You're thinking now, right? Oh, my God. Oh, yeah, yeah. No, I'm just like, I'm going through the intro. Yeah, it's, it starts off kind of fast. Then it gets really, really, really fast. It's an incredibly oh fast samba. I don't know if that was the plan, but that's the beat. That's amazing. And we're going to hear... Am, yeah, please go on. <laughs> oh, no, no, no. It's like I, I, Iron Maiden... Like, I, I first saw them on their Peace of Mind tour, I think, in 82, 83. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I just, so I've been following them for like 40 years. <laughs> I just feel... I feel like an old dude now because I'm talking about this, but I never thought about that. You know, they're clever. Uh, did you ever see the video from... Uh, made, 2010s, 2012, it was Bruce Dickinson. For those who do not know, Bruce Dickinson mm-hmm. is the primary lead singer of Iron Maiden. And he's at an IBM conference in a suit mm-hmm. talking about a video on music theory that he saw about the uh, the six interval in a melody and how it's very popular uh, in music to get people's interest. And the song they used is My Way. And the rhythm is, you know, da-da-da, da-da-da, and that's a six interval. Then the key change, da-da-da, da-da-da. And it eventually, I don't think he finished it, but apparently the interval six is used a lot in the vocals of Run to the Hills. So I believe it. Those guys are very clever. <laughs> oh, well, and, and Bruce Dickinson, let's, let's just digress for a second, is as close to a rock and roll renaissance man as you will find me, a commercial airline pilot, <laughs> a business consultant, a former Olympic fencer, Olympic quality. I don't know if he ever placed on the team, but as a competitive fencer, he was a serious challenger. Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. You don't last 40 years in metal without some other thing happening. You right. know, <laughs> it's a hard life and they're doing rather well. On that note, let's hear Iron Maiden's Run to the Hills. Yeah. 
And that was Run to the Hills by Iron Maiden, who, frankly, I love too. I want to talk about, as you would guess, the Ottoman Empire. I can tell from looking in your face, you're like, will he talk about the Ottoman Empire today? Yes. The Ottomans were the first people to say, you know what the troops need out on the military field? A band. And they were the first people to, and the rationale was beyond just scaring the enemy, but also motivate the troops, get them mm-hmm. marching, get them walking. And, and communicating. And communicating. Uh, Napoleon figured out if they walk at about the heartbeat rate, which is about 120 BPM, and they're singing, they can kind of hypnotize them into walking faster and doing more because it's in rhythm mm-hmm. with the way they're going. So marching came out of a military tradition. So it never really was essentially a cool thing. I mean, John Philip Sousa wrote a bunch of marches, and they were popular for a while, but the idea of a march being popular with the youngsters never really happened, except for one guy, John Williams. John Williams, with all of his film composition, the man loves marches, and I almost felt he wrote the Star Wars theme on a dare. The Star Wars theme is in C. For those who do not know, the most basic note they teach you in any school on a piano start with C. Not only that, I think it's like 40 instruments, and almost all of them are playing C. That first, duh, that's all one note. I think a couple of people are playing an E and a G, but it's the most fantastic one note chord I've heard. And the whole thing is a march. And it's one of the few marches my children could hum. They, they can do the whole melody line of mm-hmm. Star Wars main theme because it's that dope. And, and John Williams between that and Superman, a bunch of other films, we could, we could run off the list, uh, has made marches cool. He's the only person in my lifetime, who has made marches cool. And on that note, I will play the main theme from Star Wars by John Williams. And that was the main theme from Star Wars by John Williams. And I think it's a testimony to how great a piece of music it is. That opening C, that opening chord, the only other single chord that opens a song that you can, you hear that chord and you know what it is that I can come up with, uh, A Hard Day's Night. Oh, right, 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 right. I love that. I would say All Star by Smash Mouth. Some... And (laughs) and acapella, right? right? (laughs) Well, and also, I mean, it's been helped immeasurably by TikTok. Yes. 
Um, yeah, it's I, like even this morning I saw. I, I wonder if that's what drove the lead singer insane. I wonder if literally having people spend days upon months upon years finding ways to butcher and malign your song. The TikTok, you know, what if all the lyrics were just the word some? <laughs> right. What if you sing it all in the same note? What if it was backwards? What if it was sung one beat off where it should? That one broke my brain. I can't, oh, yeah. Yeah, I can't redo it, but that's, that's, <laughs> that, that's, that's nutty. So how old were you when you first realized what a waltz was? I was in seventh grade. Aha. Uh-huh. That I remember. So uh, I, I went to school and I was born and raised in San Francisco. As was I. Awesome. But, you know. As as neither one of us are billionaires, <laughs> you know, I've, I've been I've been in the East Bay since the eighties, off and on. I've 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 done the occasional foray to move back into the city, mm-hmm. and it, it, part of the thing was when I my parents moved out when I was thirteen, just about seventh grade, and all I wanted to do was get back into the city because I just started exploring it. But by the time I was able to move back in, the city I wanted to return to didn't really exist anymore. You know, I'm gonna. So I should just play the pretenders my city was gone, but go on. <laughs> right. No, it's, it's exactly that. Um, but anyway, in seventh grade, I went to this posh all-boys school in Pacific Heights. Now, to be fair, back in, back in the late 70s, it was a lot more inclusive. It was a little less, a little less posh. It was a bit more old school. Uh, so we had society kids, but we also had people, you know, I had friends who's, I had a friend whose mom was a single mother. She was a waitress working down at Fisherman's Wharf. Divorce was kind of only recently an acceptable, mm-hmm. socially acceptable thing. So we had a great mix of kids, which was interesting because we also had a great mix of music starting to creep in around seventh grade. But they sent us to these dance classes. And the, the two things I took out of that were the box step, three things, the box step, the waltz, and a copy of Billy Squire's In the Dark album. I think it's In the Dark, <laughs> which I won on a trivia contest. No, Lonely is the Night. Lonely is the Night. Yes. No. Boom, 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 boom. Yeah. That, that's a good album, actually, I got to say. Well produced. I think by a Queen's producer, I think. Really? I think uh, Reinhold Mack was, uh, yeah, there's some connection there. I think uh, Freddie Mercury's on that album somewhere. I'm not sure. It wouldn't surprise, I mean, the amazing thing is, like, I put that album away. Because at the time, I wasn't really, you know, my, my musical tastes were still that. I mean, at that point, like, the, the album most played on my rotation was, in fact, the Star Wars uh, soundtrack. Gotcha. You know, yeah. it was like I wrote Disco Duck by Rick Dees and his band of idiots. <laughs> uh, the Atlanta Rhythm Heritage theme from SWAT. There we go. Right. Uh, and then the first real album I bought was Dirty Deeds Thunder Cheap. <laughs> you went straight into it. That it, album, it was, well, you, the album cover scared me because that was the one all the eyes were blacked out. Right, that the right. Way? Yeah, that that terrified me. I don't In know the why. Motel. Yeah, uh, for me it was well because I had been doing again around seventh grade. My parents would send me on like these weekend ski trips just to get me out of the house. Mm. And so they they pay like twenty five bucks, and you go you get on the bus with a bunch of your friends, and you're gone for the day. And one of my buddies, early end, now Kayoni and returning to his Hawaiian roots, would bust out his older brother's ACDC. And so Highway to Hell was the first album I heard. But I remember thinking, it's 
probably a bit much to grab. <laughs> and I'm like, I don't know. It's on, but I got a record gift certificate. So I'm like, okay, I'm going to go buy an ACDC album because I, I kind of like this. Uh, and that was it. Like, yeah, what is it? Track number two is Big Balls. Right. Classic. Classic. The one you can you play. Know. Yeah. This actually happened a couple of weeks ago. So Bono, lead singer of U2, mm-hmm. is on tour and he's at a cathedral on his book tour. And he's talking about the lyrics of Highway to Hell. He had not heard the lyrics of Highway to Hell until recently himself, where somebody at a party had recited them, and he thought that young woman had wrote it. So his <laughs> wife, Bono's wife, had to explain to Bono, who's an actual rock star, what Highway to Hell was. That is amazing. So then he's there live going, has anybody had the lyrics? And he wants to read the lyrics off, off the interviewer's phone. And I'm thinking... Half the people in this room know the lyrics to Highway right. to Hell. They don't have to look them up. Because, like, that explains so much about Bono. I, I'm not sure how to right. actually <laughs> get to it. But, yeah, he somehow managed to have missed a song almost everybody his age could recite loudly. Right. <laughs> Although, to be fair, I think we all do that. Like, one falls through the crack. Right. Right. Okay. And you're okay. like, everyone knows this song. I go to a party. Everyone knows this song but me. Where the hell was I? <laughs> I Money Talks is way more popular than I want to admit by ACDC. I think it's okay. Mm-hmm. It's never the mm-hmm. one I jump to. It's usually Back in Black, honestly. But uh, it's not a bad song. Oh. But um, Back in Black, apparently, the lyrics, the way the lyrical flow of that is, just, the rhythm is so interesting. And I can't find it, but I swear that... Brian Johnson said he was listening to jazz and wanted to do sort of an off-kilter rhythm based upon, which makes sense because most of of his lyrics are pretty much, you know, on the beat, on the beat, and that sort of dances around. So I would have brought into this, but I can't find that article, so I I didn't want to make something up, but I believe that situation. All right. Okay. Waltzing, as you know, because you waltz, it's a rotating dance. It's a couple's dance. You glide. It's in three, four time. Vienna, 1780, when it got popular, then went around the world. And of course, because when the man puts his arm around the female, it was what? Scandalous. But, <laughs> and then it fell out of fashion. And then who picked it up? Sonny and Cher. Mm-hmm. Sonny Bono did not think he was a great songwriter. But the couple of songs he did write were big, big hits. And one of them, mm-hmm. I believe, all the way to number one was I Got You, Babe, which we will hear now. And I will waltz, too, during the break. All right, here we go. Flower in the spring, 
And that was I Got You, Babe, by Sonny and Cher, one of the few, but not all, of the hit songs using a waltz beat. Perhaps you know of another one, Paul. I Got You, Babe was 68, mm-hmm. but my fr- the first song I realized was a waltz that kind of pops into this, actually 67. Who was that? Jimi Hendrix, Manic Depression. Is you're right, um, it is. Yeah. That's fantastic. It's yeah, no, it's it's I love that. And I was thinking, oh, Mark's gotta do this one. And I'm like, <laughs> oh, did I, did I bring one in? You brought um, one in. It's fantastic. Now now can I can I throw a quick digression in? Pl- please. If you did not, I would be disappointed. Okay, so because you know, Jimi Hendrix, if you go to Hate Street now, mm-hmm. Jimmy is all over the place. Really? Oh yeah, there's murals of him. There is a house in the middle of Hate Street called literally the Jimi Hendrix Red House. It's painted red and has a mural on him on the side. And there are all these legends and rumors that, oh, this is where he stayed when he, this is literally, if you look it up on the internet, this is where Jimmy stayed for a few years when he was living in San Francisco. Hmm. And I'm like, Jimmy never lived in San Francisco. And there's an article. He played in uh, 67, either just before or just after the Monterey Pop Festival, he, he did a show on the back of a flatbed truck in the middle of the panhandle on um, on Ashbury between Fell and Oak. And there's photos from it. There's a guy in the photo who actually was the guy who picked him up that morning from a hotel and brought him to the thing. Cool. And I'm like, wait a minute. If Jimmy's staying in a hotel, he's not living here. And then, oh, no, he had a girlfriend. And like, I, <laughs> I went to the source of this. And as a tour guide... I felt it's important because I had repeated the story that I had heard, but I'm like, I don't buy it. So I sent a letter to the Jimi Hendrix Foundation (laughs) and got a response from his sister. Oh, wow. And I'm like, this is one of those emails that I I need to print and have framed because it's like Jimmy's sister. Uh, But yeah, no, he never lived in the city. He liked his time there. He visited a couple times, but that was pretty much it. That's fantastic. You've got a real answer from a Hendrix. That is right? golden. Now, mind you, I'm not looking to ruin this or put them out of business or anything because no. it's a great story. And it allows me to go off on a rant in mid tour <laughs> By the way, so, can we just throw out what is the name of your tour company? Oh, SF Expeditions. Excellent. So if I went to sfexpeditions.com, I could learn more? Absolutely. Remember, it's expeditions. It's important. Uh, yes. Um, <laughs> you, you could. It's um, it's funny because I, I literally December 15th is sort of my official one year in business. The company started a little before December 15th, uh, 2001. But for my purposes, it all started when I started paying the insurance on the bus. (laughs) (laughs) Which is a a year from, you know, a year ago on December 15th. Um, The deal is that I I sold the bus Mm -hmm. and I've bought a a minivan and I'm doing their more private tours. Oh, nice. So it's a much more intimate experience. We can drive down Lombard Street. There we go. Um, I include the Janis Joplin apartment. I include the Jerry Garcia house. I go on a rant about the quote-unquote Jimi Hendrix red house. Mm-hmm. This is great. So, and yeah. now with a smaller van, you can actually afford a proper uh, one-year anniversary cake. 
uh, versus Absolutely. the other one, which would have been maybe a cupcake. <laughs> so that's fantastic. I want to talk about jazz from the 20s and 30s and the, the large group of music that will, along with that, known as swing. Swing, for those of you who have not heard it, sort of like um, emphasis on the offbeat kind of stuff. Glenn Miller, uh, Duke Ellington music. So a lot of dances came out of there. The Lindy Hop, the Charleston, the Shag. Clearly an American-named dance. And then Bob Willis merged with country, created Western swing. And then swing went away. And then Teddy Riley brought it back and put it into R&B. And it was ended up being called New Jack Swing. And he ended up making lots of albums with people like, uh, he made The Show for Dougie Fresh. And he uh, Michael Jackson's Dangerous was all New Jack Swing album. But when I think of New Jack Swing, I think of Bobby Brown's My Prerogative, mainly because, A, I love the song, and two, because I wonder if Bobby knew how to spell prerogative before he was given the lyrics. Because <laughs> that P-R-E-R is kind of tricky. No, I think it's a wonderful piece. So now we're going to play for you Bobby Brown's My Prerogative. Prerogative, which uh, I've—it's one of those songs where, as my ability to hear uh, a song gets better with better fidelity and better headphones, mm-hmm. I keep finding things in there. That last part—it's clearly a vocoder singing the chorus, which I did not hear twenty years ago, thirty years ago. Right, and it's like oh, the vocoder. He's so clever. Not him, Teddy Riley. <laughs> mm-hmm. No, no difference. and then was that the original mix or was that a remaster? Uh you know, I think it's a remaster. Okay. My first experience to my prerogative was mono recording out of a speaker mm-hmm. on, on my mother's TV set, right? So, right. And then eventually you get to a cassette. <laughs> mm-hmm. It's amazing. Speaking of remastering and remixes, have you heard the Beatles Revolver remix? I haven't. It's astounding. So, Peter Jackson, when he developed the Get Back documentary... He mm-hmm. trained his computer to separate John's voice from Paul's voice so they could mix them separately. And then he realized, wow. well, I could do that with any mono recording. And 
the Beatles recorded all of Revolver on a four track. So they were taking guitars and bass and putting them on the same track. So if you listen to the original Taxman, almost all the guitars, bass, and drums are in the left ear and the vocals in the right because they didn't really care about getting a good stereo mix back in 66. And to mm-hmm. my ears, it always sounded uh, disjointed and disturbing and other D words. So they ran the master tape through Peter Jackson's Wondrous Machine and then remixed with the bass in the middle. And, the, and the, uh, all the percussion has been separate, so you hear more shakers and tambourines that were buried in the mix. And the vocals are surrounding you and not shoved into one corner. It's amazing. It's like a new album. That's incredible. It's, um, I will check. Yes, it out. no, it's it's it is so exciting. And now the world's most interesting segue. Let's talk about <laughs> Bossa Nova. <laughs> okay. So most of these beats were created back in time from many people whose names are gone. This we can point to one guy, a drummer from Brazil named Milton Banana. Maybe it's Banana. I don't know. <laughs> And Milton played samba, as many people did in Brazil, and thought, what if I just reduce it to its most basic elements? Forget all the other drum beat, just the, the simple da-da-da-da stuff. So think the girl from Ipanema, that is samba. And it went wide. This is the late 50s, early 60s. And it mm-hmm. spawned a very smooth, supple kind of, of sound that was a new in Brazil, uh, the Gold from Ipanema probably being the most famous one. And so that is the Bossa Nova beat. And that beat is the one used by The Clash in Straight to Hell. Okay. I was trying to figure out what it was. By I the knew way, that one was coming up. Paul is wearing a Clash Sandinista shirt, oh, yeah. <laughs> which I approve yeah, of highly. Huge Clash fan. Huge Clash fan, as all should be. Uh, right. So, and their drummer, Topper Head On, was a fantastic drummer and could play any beat that the other two writers could come up with. Um, oh yeah! In such a way, so when he was re- when he eventually got replaced by again by uh, Terry Chimes. Uh, no, no, he, Ch- Terry Chimes was the the original, original. one. Okay. Was on the first album. Okay, right. So Topper Head did most of it, and he had to leave. And I think they brought Chimes back. Whoever came afterwards was like. How am I going to play all of these beats? Because <laughs> right. Topper was just an insane person who could play pretty much any beat given to him. And so he was the one who was like, you know, Bossa Nova needs to go with this. We can't just play a regular rock beat because he knew his stuff. And you will hear his stuff right now. You will hear Straight to Hell by The Clash. Steel mills rust, water froze. 
And that was Straight to Hell from The Clash, all bossa nova out. Now, here's a question. Yes. I, I'm assuming, uh, what is it? Is it soul bossa nova, Quincy Jones? Yes. Austin Powers. That's Yes. Yeah, that's right. That's right. That's right. Quincy's just everywhere and does everything and is always slightly oh, ahead yeah. of everything. On the new 40th anniversary release of Thriller, mm-hmm. there was a song I've been wanting to listen to for literally... 40 years. It's a song called Behind the Mask that was written by Yellow Magic Orchestra in 7980. And it's a electro pop song. And Michael Jackson wrote new lyrics and wanted to put it on Thriller. And Yellow Magic Orchestra's management could not come to an agreement on how much the breakdown would be on who gets what. It's kind of common that uh, if you are the lyricist, you get 50%. And I guess they didn't agree with that. So it was never finished. It's still a demo. It was left off of Thriller, which didn't sound such a bad idea before Thriller came out and sold a bazillion copies. Right. So the uh, Greg Philagains, who is at the time, Michael Jackson's keyboard player said, I like this song. Can I put it on my solo album? Mike says, go for it. Greg records it. Not really a hit. Greg ends up becoming the keyboardist for Eric Clapton. Eric Clapton hears it and goes, oh, I would record this. So Behind the Mask is now a hit in Europe. Not so much here, but a hit there. Richie Sakamoto, who wrote the song from YMO, hears it with the new lyrics and goes, that's the way I'm going to do it on tour. So now he's on tour. (laughs) Uh, with uh, Bernard Fowler, who sings Background for the Stones now, was singing lead for Sakamoto on tour, doing it the Michael Jackson way. This is all like in the 80s, like almost like year after year after <laughs> year. So after Michael died, they released a remix of the original demo, which sounded kind of whack, but the actual original th- song never came out till like a month ago. And it's great. Amazing. Yeah, it, it's... Uh, <laughs> but my question was, how did Michael Jackson even hear... What would be an obscure Yellow Magic Orchestra song? Because Quincy heard it and said, here, Michael, try this. Quincy's mm-hmm. always ahead of the curve. Oh, my God. All right. Let's talk about... Oh, okay. Did you see the movie Weird, the Al Yankovic story? Not yet. You it's, love I, it. I actually... I, I'm not going to say I um, took Weird Al's advice. Because somebody basically said, listen, I live in a part of the world that's not out here yet. I can't stream it. He said, you know, I'm sure if you were to ask for suggestions, you would get a torrent of answers (laughs) on how you can find a copy of this movie. (laughs) Yeah. I think my mic went to the red on that one. So for those of you who have Roku, uh, or it's free on Roku, it's a lovely, completely falsified telling of Wordell Yankovic's life. It's a parody of, of course it's a parody, it's a parody of all music biopics, and it's, it mm-hmm. has its own insanity. But the reason I want to bring him up, because I want to talk about Polka. Wordell is by far the most mm-hmm. prominent Polka star of my lifetime. Uh, in terms of uh, influence and in terms of actually somewhat enjoying his polka music. Although it started, as we all know, in the kingdom of Bohemia in the 19th century. I mean, that's just 
basic knowledge. And it's all this half tempo, oompa, 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 oompa kind of thing. And it's great, great with accordions. And it's, it's, it's also so popular in America, the U.S. Polk Associations in Cleveland. But, you know, there's also Zydeco, which has some polka influence down in New Orleans and the Cajunto style in Mexico. But what would surprise you, the musician of note I want to mention who took polka lessons as a child, as a child, other than Weird Al, was Josh Homme of Queens of the Stone Age. And for some reason, only known to him, he decided to make a polka song and hit it <laughs> inside No One Knows. I love catching the hidden influence. It's basically their musical Easter eggs. Yes, that's a good way to put it. Look what you I know. can do. Um, and no, you're not even going to notice it. No, no, you're just going to be rocking out. And we're going to play that right now. Queens of the Stone Age, No One Knows. That was Queens of the Stone Age. No one knows. I want to talk about the clave. The clave beat is basically, uh, think of George Michael's faith. Dunk, 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 dunk. Mm -hmm. That beat's gone through. We call it Hambone here. It is like the beat of Cuban music. It started in Sub-Saharan mm -hmm. Africa, but that dunk, 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 dunk. Faith is probably the most obvious song with the clave beat, which is why I'm not going to play that song. <laughs> <laughs> it's also in rumba music and mambo and salsa and reggaeton, but usually has a certain kind of fast tempo. But if you slow it down, it's the same beat in Royals by Lord. It's very subtle, but once you hear it and the way she mm -hmm. sings up against it, it's dead on. She's from New Zealand. How'd the beat get mm -hmm. there? I don't know. MTV, a boat, the internet. These beats just are everywhere. And it got there, and it totally worked. And for those of you listening, I don't believe it. Let's hear it. Let's hear Royals from Lord, Like now. I've never seen a diamond in the flesh. I cut my teeth on wedding rings in the movies. And I'm not proud of my address. In a torn up town, no postcode but every song's like gold teeth, gray goose dripping in the bathroom, bloodstains, ball gowns, trash in the hotel room. We don't care. We're driving. 
with the clave beat. There was an article, someone of a, a notable stature, it was like Mick, like Mick Jagger, Johnny Cash level of recognition. It might have been Ringo Starr. Could have been. Uh, that Don't Dream It's Over is just like, he's like, that's the greatest song of all time. <laughs> and I'm like, okay, he might actually have a point. And the thing I found is, so I've spent a fair amount of time in New Zealand prior to the pandemic. I was in New Zealand when they locked out the borders and oh, wow. we had to come back. And so just, yeah, a quick shout out. Kia ora, Aotearoa. Love the place. Uh, but one of the things that I find is a strong, you mentioned Peter Jackson mm-hmm. doing the Beatles. Uh, and a friend of mine, David, who runs a theater down there, runs has run multiple theaters, is also the single biggest Beatles font of knowledge I've ever met. There's a real appreciation for music that I don't find here in quite the same way. And it's not a it's not a bad thing that we don't have it here. I think it's there is a real connection to it in New Zealand. You know, this triggers something. So when I'm looking up mm-hmm. songs and getting chart placements, bands that would never hit the radio here are radio stars in New Zealand. The only hit on radio Faith No More had in America was Epic. And in New mm-hmm. Zealand, there's a bunch of hits. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's you know, there's, it, it's kind of amazing. I actually was lucky enough to catch Iron Maiden on their Book of Souls tour. Oh, OK. And the vibe, like I got there three hours before the show because <laughs> I figured, you know, here you get to there, you get there three hours early. There's still a massive line. Right. Like there are people camping out. I get there. I was like the sixth person in the line. I'm like, this is amazing. <laughs> so I was I was basically at the, at the barricade one point. I was wow. up against the stage as wow. close as you can get for a bit. Um, met a bunch of folks, lovely people from around the world, and then a, a New Zealand dairy farmer. Uh, and they're just huge Iron Maiden fans out there. So that's one thing. The other thing is, yeah, Guns N' Roses just played there two days ago. Okay. Uh, but that for me isn't the big thing. For me, the big thing is one of my favorite bands, Alien Weapon. Open for them. I don't know them. Oh, you're in for a treat. I've been for a treat. They they, they sing mostly in Te Reo Maori, which okay. is the language of the, the Maori people of New Zealand. And it is just, it's magnificent. Really, really good stuff. And they're like, I, I think the oldest band member just turned 22. Oh, wow. And they, they've been at it for years. Alien Weapon, absolutely look them up. Their album, Two, to you. Big thumbs up. And then uh, what's the name of the other one? They just, I'm going to have to look this up. That's fine. Um, So will the audience. Alien Weaponry, TU. Yep, not even on theme. So what? It's going to be good. I'm going to look it up. You're going to look it up. 
Hey, everybody. I think we've reached the natural end of this episode. I am so happy to have Paul Jennings join me. Uh, anything else you want to promote, Paul? You want to say your company one more time so people can go be aware? Oh, yeah. It's sfexpeditions.com. And I just do tours of San Francisco. Uh, I've got the Highlights Tour, which is sort of the tour you give friends and family. It's about two and a half hours, maybe three hours. Uh, and then a Golden Gate Bridge Tour, which is just for people who just want to go to the Golden Gate Bridge. I include a lot of personal stuff in there, not because I'm particularly interesting, but because I find it gives context for people. This is this is what it was like in the period. I mean, anybody can do. This is the Golden Gate Bridge. It was finished in 1937. <laughs> yada, yada. I mean, who cares? Right. I, I have the information and I share it, but it's far more interesting to talk about things like the day that they opened the bridge on its 50th birthday in 1987 and 350, 400,000 people showed up and it was so heavy that the bridge started to flatten. That's an interesting story. And I show photos and stuff. So, yeah, definitely come check it out if you come into the city. And happy to show you the Janis Joplin apartment, the uh, Jerry Garcia house, and rant about the Jimi Hendrix false red house. Excellent. Thank you very much. And hey, everybody, listen, come back next week, and we'll unveil another fun theme. And you can follow me on all media at beacons.ai slash M-M-F-R-E-N-C-H. That's beacons.ai slash French. That's where all of my social stuff is. Well, I have to remember the name of every single one. Original music courtesy of Spiky Blimp. Thanks, and I'll see you next time. <laughs>